Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of Wonderfilled Week. I am your host, Caitlin Corey. As I mentioned last week, during the remaining weeks of the shelter-in-place order, I am releasing episodes as part of a series called The Life Series, where I will spotlight people whose stories inspire me. Today is episode two of The Life Series, and it is entitled Life in Recovery. On today's episode, I am joined by a friend and fellow podcaster, Jackie Donovan. Jackie is an amazing mother and entrepreneur and the host of Boston's favorite podcast, The Part-Time Friends. She is a total girl boss and has welcomed so many dynamic guests onto her show, like lifelong friends, local business owners, and recently interviewed Sammy from Netflix's hit show, The Circle. Jackie is a warm and welcoming soul who makes everyone feel like a friend and not just a part-time one. Today, Jackie and I are going to delve into her past and discuss the experiences and events that ultimately resulted in her deciding to live a life of sobriety. If you or someone you know is battling addiction, you are not alone, and there are many resources out there to help. It's never too late to change the path you're on. Jackie is living proof that there is life on the other side of addiction. Hey, Jackie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to have you on. So I already gave everybody sort of an intro into what the topic was about. Um, so I think we should just dive right into it. Is that good with you? Sounds good to me. All right. Yeah, sounds awesome. All right. So just can you give everyone a little insight into what it was like growing up and you know where you're from and what your life was like and then how you were first introduced to sort of any sort of substance? Yeah, so um, I'm 35 years old. Um, I was raised in primarily like a single family household. My mother was the sole care provider. My sister and I, um, we lived in South Boston when I was younger and we moved to Braintree because my mother couldn't afford to pay the bills on her own. Um, she had uh, she had divorced my sister's father. Um, and yeah, we just moved to Braintree. I grew up like in a normal family for the most part. Um, I don't know what is considered normal. But I mean, I think there's a stigma when you talk about um, drug addiction. I think people have this, this like this stigma in the back of their head that it looks a certain way. Um, in my life, I honestly grew up, I traveled a lot with my mom. Um, I had nice things, like I got what I wanted. I was, I was really a good kid, um, but there was like behaviors from a young age that I noticed. I lied a lot, I was really dishonest. Um, I would, you know, manipulate my way into getting things. But like, you know, I think that children do that anyway. My looking back in hindsight, things were just like stand out for me now. Um, but yeah, growing up, it was good. I probably tried my first drink around 13 or 14. Nothing too crazy. Um, like the effect, tried marijuana at like probably 13 or 14 as well wasn't for me. It wasn't until I was probably 16, I found ecstasy in the BBC nightclub and <laughs> off of Route 1. They used to have under 21 dance parties. <laughs> and I loved the feeling that ecstasy gave me. It, it made me dance. It made me not care. Um, and yeah, that was probably like my first run in um, with any sort of like hard drugs, if you will. Uh, and then from there, um, you know, I didn't really do that all the time got a boyfriend guys are a big part of like my 
my story because um, I not only am I a drug addict, I'm like a codependent. I have daddy issues. I have abandonment issues. I have issues up the ass. Um, so, yeah, uh, when I broke up with that boyfriend, um, OCs were big on the scene and uh, OC 80s. I had no clue what I was getting into. Like, I thought, honestly, I thought girls were getting skinny. I didn't understand why they were, but I was like, sign me up. I'll lose a couple pounds because I also suffer from like body image stuff. So right there, it was like, yeah, cool. Lose a couple LBs, make me feel good. And it did like opiates gave me that relief that I was looking for probably my whole life. Um, and you didn't have any, uh, you didn't have any fear going into it. Like you're you know, of course, like, I think it's pretty typical for kids to try alcohol as, you know, in high school and even marijuana, but you didn't have any, like, fear going into the ecstasy and that those sort of harder drugs that didn't scare you at all? No, I think that I always, I always liked to be, like, a, I don't want to say rebel because I sound so stupid, but I always liked to try things. I always wanted to go against the grain to a degree. Um, so yeah, it never really crossed my mind. And I, I always thought I was a little bit better than like, I'd never get addicted to anything. And that was obviously my delusion. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is crazy to think like, you don't, you see it happen. Did you see it happen to other people at that age though? Or really no one you knew was addicted yet? Cause you were all pretty young. Your friends were around the same age. Yeah. And it's like, so I, when I grew up, like a lot of kids that I grew up with didn't get high like that. Um, and then I had, I met people later on that did get high like that. And obviously like attracts like, and I ended up hanging out with those people. I would hang out with people like myself um, that got high like I did or uh, things like that. But I remember looking back in hindsight, it's funny that because in Southie, people got sober really young and I didn't understand it. I don't think because I just didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't understand what opiates did. I didn't understand. I always knew heroin was really bad and I was never going to do heroin. That was my whole thing in life. Like, I will never do that. And obviously, as the story goes, I, I go and take it to that level. Right. It's like anything else, too. I remember I went to high school with this girl and she would say, like, she was like sort of that one to always try everything first. And so she was like kissing boys before we would ever think about doing that. And then by the time we were kissing boys, she was doing much more. When we were doing much more, she was like on a whole other level. And it was like, it was like just like that. But she would always say, well, yeah, I kiss boys, but I don't do this. Or, oh, I do this, but I don't do that. And it was always like pushing it. But event same thing. Eventually she got to that place she promised she'd never go. But it's like a slippery slope and it doesn't just happen overnight. It's just sort of like a gradual, you know, decline, right? Yeah, I mean, you just described me, I feel like, to a T in that area of my life, too, to be completely honest. I, and, and I hate to say that, but like like I said, guys are a big part of my story because I, I grew up without a dad. So I think my whole life, I don't think, I know, I know my whole life I was just like searching for someone to love me because I didn't know how to love myself. Right. And that's so, so much how it goes yeah, for so I many mean, people, I think, too. I think a lot of people feel that way and end up in similar situations. Yeah, it took me a long time to figure it out, yeah. So you promised yourself you were never going to do heroin. That was always, like, the no-no, like, the worst one, like, worst-case scenario. So how long were you, like, sort of dabbling in the other things before it got to that point? So, um, so like I said, I tried OCs, um, loved the feeling. I was enrolled in hairdressing school 
couldn't finish hairdressing school to save my life. My mother calls in um, the lady that runs the hairdressing academy and is like, she needs to get off the drugs. And the lady looks at her and she's like, I just run a beauty school. Like I'm, I'm not a drug counselor. You know, and I put on the act and I made her feel bad. And actually, I think, you know, Mary Devlin met me downtown um, at downtown crossing and she handed me a list of detox that day. And she said, I think that you need to go get help. And um, I ended up going home with my tail in between my legs because I wasn't living at my house at this time. I was looking back now as to I was homeless, but I didn't think I was homeless because I was living on my friend's couch. Isn't that normal? <laughs> um, and yeah, so I went home with my tail in between my legs, got honest, told my mom. Um, and those two weeks, what it looked like for me was like, my mom asked me to go to a detox and I said no. And so she helped me detox for two weeks. Um, cold turkey, no. She was like Elizabeth Grady on Newberry Street to go get like body massages because she read on, she was just Googling and reading things on the computer to like make me feel, that's all she wanted to do with me be okay. Um, and like, yeah, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I promised, you know, I make the promise, mom, no more drugs, I'll just drink. Cause I didn't think problem with drinking. Drinking was never a problem in my past. So 21, it looked like um, me drinking. I was going out six nights a week to Faneuil Hall, stumbling over cobblestones, getting in fist fights. Um, yeah, just being an absolute mess. My mother's still trying to get me to finish hairdressing school. She's driving me every morning with a ginger ale and saltines. Mm. And I'm thinking, hey, this is normal. I missed out on college. Um, and then I'll pick it up. So 22, it ended up looking like cocaine came into the picture. And what cocaine did for me was like made me stay up longer and and feel this like you know made me drink the way i wanted to drink too and um yeah so what that ends up looking like is i i suffer from a minor stroke um and there's a young doctor that comes into the room right and he looks like doogie hauser so oh i'm like God. oh he'll understand what i'm doing so he's like asking me how much do you drink? And I'm like, well, I pregame with this and then I drink this. And he's like, well, how many drugs do you do? And I'm telling him because my mother's not in the room. And she's, and I'm like, after I keep saying, this is how much I do. Sorry, I keep saying, do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? And he's not saying yes back. So literally what I thought was he didn't have a good social life. Like I was like, oh, this doctor's a loser. Oh my God. I swear. Totally. Yeah. I thought that everyone drank and took cocaine to the point where they had my strokes. Oh my God. I didn't realize that and you had a mother, stroke. She kept on going, it's the Red Bulls. Oh my God, poor thing. Yeah, it was crazy. I was, yeah, it was so crazy. So oh um, 23, what it looked like for me was crack cocaine came into the picture. I started hanging out with the kids um, that had um, been on the methadone clinic and, you know, they drove nice cars. And so I thought that was cool. So yeah, I mean... It was just a whirlwind. I crossed a lot of lines that I always said I'd never cross. Um, and eventually that wound me up in a section 35, which in Massachusetts, um, you get placed in handcuffs, the police come and get you and you are, um, you go in front of a judge and a psychiatrist and uh, they evaluate you. I just went willingly. I was like, yeah, I'll go. So I went um, to a place in New Bedford called Women's Addicted Treatment Center. And uh, yeah, they, you know, it's a 35, well, it was, a, I think it's like a 20 day, um, you're basically can't go anywhere. Um, 
and there's a detox and then you go over to another part of the program and then AA meetings and NA meetings start to come in and uh, send the message of recovery. And at that point, I wasn't quite sold on it yet. You would think that I would be, uh, but I wasn't quite sold on it. I thought I was going to keep drinking, but uh, little by little, I started to like identify and not so much compare myself. So I thought that like maybe I would try uh, AA meetings when I got out and I did and I tried and uh, what I didn't what I didn't realize is I was going to AA for all the wrong reasons. It was like tattoos and guys and sneakers and all the outside stuff, right? Because Jackie's not okay with Jackie. So if I focus on other stuff and uh, what ended up happening is I hung out with some people and I wanted to try it. I wanted to be that girl. I just wanted to know what everyone, what all the hype was about. That's like really where my head was at. And uh, yeah. That's so crazy because... um... I know, well, you can, maybe you can debunk the stereotype or maybe prove it. You can tell me. I know a lot of people say that uh, if you go to um, one of those treatment facilities and you're in like a detox or a rehab, that if you're not willing, like if you're not there ready to make the change, that it ends up being more of like a breeding ground to meet new people and new contacts and new people that you can do it with and new people that you could get it from. And is that true or is that... So it's so hard because I've obviously replayed that tape in my head a lot um, because relapse is a huge part of my story as well. Um, And I've been down that road where I'm like, if I never went to that section 35, would I have ended up like that? Would I have? But I really think that I would have given how I was like eventually it would have eventually happened is what I'm trying to say. So it was going to happen either way. Yeah, I think it definitely would have. Yeah. And I think, uh, too, something else that you mentioned, wanting to know what it was like, because where we're from and people who are not from South Boston won't maybe understand this or maybe they will, because I feel like drugs are everywhere and it's a big problem throughout the country. It's not just I think we are from a place that it's a really big problem in South Boston. And so I can see what you mean, like as crazy as that may sound to someone else. When you say, like, I wanted to know what it was like or I wanted to try it, it's because no one, I don't think anyone who lives in South Boston has not been touched by either themselves, a family member, a friend. Everyone's life has been touched by someone with heroin use. And so in a way, it is kind of like, well, what is it like? I mean, it's like when you're a little kid, right, and you see your mom drinking wine or champagne and it seems like glamorous. You want to try it or you're little and you want to put makeup on. I want to try that. Like, and, and as crazy as this sounds to compare, like using heroin, but we're from a place where everybody, it seems, has tried it, done it, struggled with it, recovered from it. And you do kind of think like, well, what was it like that it like could consume you like that? And I can see in a way, as twisted as it sounds, I can, I know exactly what you mean. Like I'm nodding over here, like thinking, yeah, you do kind of like wonder because everyone around, like, I mean, I don't know anyone whose life hasn't been touched by this. Yeah. Especially nowadays, it's like so scary now because I feel like everyone you come in contact with has is affected by at least you know what I mean in at least one way or another by someone close or a work friend or knows somebody um and it's just so funny now being sober um for a little while no obviously nothing crazy but it's funny to hear people that don't know that I'm sober talk about people with drug addiction problems to me. Like I've been in, you know, I was in the management field um, prior to having my last child. And some of, you know, some of my employees would come up and like start talking really negative about drug addicts. And it was so crazy because, and I get it. I get both sides. I do. I'm like, 
very open-minded um but it's funny because at the end of the day they all did end up finding out because I am so open about my recovery and my past um that I just hope that I bring a little bit of like not all of us you know are are, are hopeless oh absolutely I feel like that's the big thing like I know I get so irritated, like, because of course I am also one of the people whose family is affected by this because everyone's is basically from where we're from. Um, so anytime I hear anyone, you know, disparaging, saying the, like, the word that I hate the most, which I'll say junkie, like, I hate that word. Anyone, like, anytime I hear someone talking negatively, like, I think about the people that I know, family and friends who have been used, like, used it or been affected by it or lost somebody to it. And I, I think to myself, like, that's such a horrible, like, you should be so lucky to be even able to talk bad about it because that means you have no experience with it. And, like, you should take that as a blessing and you should be grateful. You shouldn't be disparaging the people who have been, you know, struggling and, and hurt by this disease. Yeah, no, it's 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 such a sense. People are so sensitive nowadays about everything. It's wicked annoying. <laughs> it is. It's like so annoying. And I've just come to the conclusion that it's just everyone has their own journey. Everyone goes through different things. So like when people start talking shit, I'm just like, I get it. But I'm, I'm just grateful that I have like a little bit of perspective in my life where I can say like, that's okay that they're not there yet. Because a long time ago, I, I couldn't say that I was there. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say that I love about you and I always have is A, how honest and transparent you are. Like there's just really, what you see is what you get. You have no secrets, you're open and willing to talk about anything. And you know, I could have had a lot of people come on and talk about this subject because we do know so many people affected by it, but I want someone who, who can see both sides, someone who is open-minded, not judgmental, because even though you experience it and you could be one of those people who's very like, you know, self-righteous about it or like, you know, like very sensitive and, and passionate, you're more like, I get it. Like, I can see both sides. I can understand. I know my experience and I know that you don't have this experience and I can meet you in the middle. And that's kind of like how we should all be, right? Totally, totally. Even when I sponsor girls, um, I've had girls that are on um, maintenance. I've had girls that are on Suboxone or Methadone. Um, some people don't believe um, in sponsoring girls or taking them through the big book, of the 12, which is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But in what I look at it as is, is it's an, an experience for them. Like they might never get to open a book with someone or have it explained to them like what this disease looks like. And I get to do it. And it's like, it's not causing harm. If I was causing harm to someone, I wouldn't do it. But I just think that give it a shot, give it a whirl. Yeah. I'm just thinking like you would be an awesome sponsor because I feel like the girls would really be able to connect to you because you are down to earth and honest and like in a good way, regular, you know what I mean? Some, not everyone's like that, so it's, they would be lucky to have someone like you to guide them through it. Um, but to get back to it, so you're in the meetings, the sneakers, the tattoos, the boys, you wanted to try it, so how old were you when you, when you tried it? I was either 24 or 25, um, roughly. Um, yeah, and that was a, a long road of shooting, um, you know, IBUs heroin, uh, and it took me down a lot of paths, like I said, that I, all those lines in the sand that you draw, cross them even more so. Um, and then I tried to get on the methadone clinic. I've done subutex. Um, I've done Percocets, just, you know, just trying to switch it up uh, yeah. to make myself feel like I might be normal and nothing ever worked for me. Um, it was a long road. It wasn't until I was pregnant with my daughter that I even tried to really get sober. Oh, wow. 
Um, okay, so I have some questions, and I know you'll answer because you're regular and, and you'll you know that I have no experience with this, so I really don't understand. So fire away. <laughs> so when you tried it for the first time, were you able to like administer it yourself, and like was it scary? Like I know a lot of I've heard people say like they've had other people help them with it. Like what was going through your mind? Were you, I know you wanted to try it just to see what it was all about, but like did you have fear? Any second I, guessing yourself? I hated needles my whole life. I used to ball my eyes out when I had to go get blood drawn or shots. I was a big wimp. Um, so I remember vividly being at South Shore Hospital in my probably like 1920. And I remember the nurse taking my blood and saying, at least she'll never be a heroin addict. She literally said that, right? A little foreshadowing. Um, so <laughs> when I first tried it, I'll never forget. I was in Holbrook. I was with, um, this young gentleman um, that had just wrapped up a sentence in um, either, I think, Dedham, House of Correction. And he didn't want to do, he didn't want to, he didn't want to give it to me. But I mean, I was very persistent. I was very persuasive. Um, and I just said, I really, um, if you don't do it, then someone else will. And that's the truth. And and I've given drugs to people that have never tried things. Um, as much shame as I've I've had in doing, well, you know, looking back at it, um, it, it is what it is. That's my truth. Like, and this was, yeah, that kid shot me up and I loved the feeling. I remember going home. I lived in Quincy um, with this my friend Casey and I just remember wanting more. I just wanted to do it again. I loved the rush. I loved the way it made me feel. But like death, I never thought I was going to overdose. I thought I was invincible. I thought no one was going to stop me. So really all along the road, you were trying these new things, having these new experiences, and you still were in that sort of like, like delusion, denial, like it's not like invincible. Like, and I think a lot of kids that age are that way. And if, you know, it's a sad lesson you have to learn, I guess, in different ways for different people on their journey. And yours was a very like tough and rough lesson to learn. But it's just, it's crazy to think like that you, you know, like you said, you drew the lines in the sand and you went past them just because you just, you know, we're pushing it little by little. Um, did you tell anyone once you did it? Like, did you tell any of your friends who weren't drug users that you tried it or did you keep it a secret? Anything like that? Um, so that was my, a big part of like a big part of even growing up was like seek, trying to keep a secret, but I have pretty much a big mouth because I love, I love to talk. I would talk to the wall if it would talk back to me. Um, so I remember kind of, um, that like, I think I might've told my friend Casey that I was living with who who didn't do drugs like that. Um, I don't remember what her reaction was. I know I told one of my friends, Marissa, um, she's sober now, um, but she had tried heroin and she was like, Jackie, what do you do? Like, it, she was trying to warn me, like, let me make the mistakes I've already made. Um, but yeah, I just didn't want to hear it. You couldn't tell me anything, honestly, at that point. And I just look at like 25, 26 year olds now and I'm like, God, I don't want, I don't take back anything that I've done, but I think just knowing all the stuff that I know now, I'm like, oh, to have it at 25. Oh my God. I know. Like I look at my brothers around that age and like, sometimes, yeah, you can't tell kids that age anything. And especially if you like found that high that you wanted to like chase and find again, I'm sure there was like really no, no getting through to you. Like, it's like you said, you sadly have to learn lessons on your own. Even when your friend who tr did it went down that road, like she was even trying to say, like, don't, don't, do not enter. 
but yeah, you just had yeah. to do it. It like cost me my family, um, my relationship with my mom, my sister, my dad, like I said, said wasn't in the picture because he was a drug addict at, um, my whole life. So he wasn't present. So it was kind of like I was becoming the person that I never wanted to be. Um, but yeah, it, it didn't matter. There was nothing that was going to get in my way, but you know, I just wanted the next, the next one. That was it. So when you were younger and you were, you know, doing the, the other drugs, um, and your mom was still there, like championing you and trying and like being by your side and, and bringing you to school and like trying to help you. Um, when was it that she like was like, I can't do this anymore? Um, probably and uh, not probably. Uh, so I ended up in a program probably around 25 uh, when I was shooting heroin and I ended up at um, I think it was Woman's Hope and it was um, on Magnolia Street in Roxbury. So it was like a real culture shock when I went into any of these places with other women because I literally, I was either above you or below you. There was like no gray area for me. Um, I thought I was like a better than, like my ego was really big. I thought because my family had money, I somehow had money, which was not the case. Yeah, <laughs> um, that was a rude I awakening. I, yeah, like these girls had been through the ringer already and I just had it. I had, I'm lucky to say that like, you know, I've never slept outside. Um, I mean, I've slept in a car before, but I thought, hey, it's a BMW, but that's where my head was at. Like, you know, the delusion. But when I went to these places, I remember calling my mom. It was always like the poor me's, like, how could you do this to me? How could you make me stay here? And, and you know, like I said, hindsight's a real thing because now I just look at how self-centered and selfish I was. I expected everything. I expected at the time I smoked like, you know, packs of cigarettes on end. I wanted you to bring me cigarettes and money and have my clothes back. My mother used to come with like shopping bags of stuff for me, um, brand new. And I just, you know, I just wasn't grateful. I was just in it. And like, unfortunately, you know, that's my, that's again, my truth. And I, and I can't take it back, but uh, I own it and, and that's all I can. And so, yeah, going on and going forward and like not having relationships with certain family members, I had to be okay with that in order to get sober. Yeah. So it got to the point where she was just, there was she was bringing you stuff and then she just couldn't do it anymore. There was just like insatiable. You just wanted more and more. You weren't stopping and she just probably had it. Yeah. She was just over it. And she just, I think with my dad not being around, I don't know if that sparked it. I don't know if, you know, she, she didn't want a heroin addict for a daughter. I got like that. I don't, I don't really know the answers to that. I only know my part, um, which was I was super selfish and super self-centered and I wasn't a good daughter and I wasn't being the best person or version of me. I feel like the, the things that you're saying, the accountability that you're taking is so inspiring because I, I don't think a lot of people have that perspective of themselves or they're not able to really look at themselves as a whole. Like the way you're talking about yourself is almost like you're outside of yourself looking in and you're just giving like a brutally honest assessment of what's happening like you're not at all sugarcoating it for yourself you're not trying to repaint the picture to be somebody else's fault and I think that's really admirable because I don't think that's a that's not a quality I see very often in people it took a long time <laughs> and a lot of pain yeah I imagine <laughs> unfortunately so you yeah. were in and out of rehabs it wasn't just like a one and done detox how long did you go on that carousel for so that lasted from 25 till about 29. Um, I was in and out 
tons of awesome relationships. I say that with awesome, like that awesome, awesome wink, wink. thing with yeah. a lot of sarcasm. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of winners <laughs> and yeah. So 29, I found myself, um, coming off of Macedon, breaking up with, um, another boyfriend. And, um, I found myself on plenty of fish and I met a guy and the guy had a bunch of sober mutual friends on Facebook. So he said, want to go on a date? So I said, um, yeah, I'll go on a date, but I just want to let you know that I'm not, I'm not sober. So, and like, he didn't know what I meant by that. He thought I like meant like, oh, but I like drink. So he's like, right. cool. I just want to take you out on a date. So we go out on the date and obviously we hit it off and he's in a sober house and he had been through the Gavin program, which is, um, to give context to that, it's a, uh, it's a halfway house in Boston. Um, and then they have a three quarter house and then they have a sober house. So it's like, you know, in the process of getting sober, you kind of get your life together bit by bit. So he was in the 12 steps and working a program <laughs> and here I am shooting heroin, but just enough to make me not sick but not make me look like I'm incoherent when I'm with him. You sort of like oh, mastered yeah. that oh, in between. Totally. Just enough to get away with it, but not enough to give yourself away. Dangerous. Yeah, I had it down pat, except for the fact he, he called me out a couple weeks into the into, oh, okay. the, into dating um, when he was like, what do you do, Percocets? And I was like, I shoot heroin. And what my selfishness and my self-centered looks like is me ended up, I ended up shooting heroin at the end of, at the top of his bed. And he and he's ended, he ends up at the end of the bed praying not to get high. Like oh, literally on his God. hands and knees praying not to get high. Because that's where it takes me. I don't care about anyone but myself when I'm in that state. Oh my gosh. So was he uh, recovering from heroin or from alcohol or something else with heroin? So that was his drug of yeah. choice. Yeah. And he had hit like his rock bottom looks so different. Like he had been to jail. He was riding freight trains up the West coast, homeless um, in Port, uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, wow. He was all over California. Yeah. And, and he was sober. And that was like the first person that I like believed that oh could get God. sober. Right. Oh, so that he was the first person you saw and was like, wow, you've come a long way and you're really like living it. And that was your motivation. Yeah, he had like a spark about him. He had started like he was meditating, which I thought was so weird. I was like, you started a meditation meeting where you close your eyes. I'm like, that's weird. <laughs> you're like, get me out of here. <laughs> literally. Oh my God. Okay. So, okay. So you literally did it right in the bed and he's at the bottom of the bed praying. I'm like trying to picture that. That is wild. So you were really just so lost that you could not even, because knowing you, like, of course, you're like a great person. Like you're not the kind of person who soberly is going to like hurt someone or like tempt them and test them in that way. But when you're, yeah. when you're under that influence, it's like nothing else exists, right? Yeah. All bets are off. That's scary. Um, yeah, it was. It was a crazy experience. And like, I paint that picture. And I think that people sometimes think I say it with being like sarcastic, like, oh, he was at the, you know, pranked. It's like, literally, he was asking God to remove the obsession to help him to give him you know, strength, find the all strength that. Not to get yeah. high. And, he di and he didn't get high. Um, he didn't. I did. Um, did he see you again after he, that? Yeah, he tried to put up a boundary okay. um, to to say, you know, I can't date you if you're going to remain to get high. So I did what I, I did best and I lied and I said, okay, mm -hmm. I'll stop doing it and I'll get on that's the boxing and um, I will, I'll be sober for you. And uh, that just like wasn't happening, but I made him believe it was up until the point where I came out of his sober house bathroom with a pregnancy test. So not only did I have to say I, I was pregnant, I had to tell him that I wasn't sober either. Wow. Okay. 
So walk us through this. Now you're pregnant. How did he take it? What did you do? Paint the picture. Oh, it was just like crazy. I think he like didn't even know what to say. And he was so heartbroken that I was, I was using, you know what I mean? He was so devastated. Um, but I, ne- so it's funny because I never wanted kids. And um, for some reason, I don't know, I don't know, it was, you know, it has to be like my, a God moment in my life, right? I, I, I knew I had to have this baby. Like I, something inside me was like, we're having a baby. Because normally I would have been like, no, I can't do this. I would have found a, an alternative. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to have the baby. So he told me that I had to go and find a detox. And what it ended up looking like is I went to St. Elizabeth's in Brighton. I went to the hospital. I went to the emergency room and I thought they were going to help me get into some rehab. So I was like, I told them what happened. And um, all the um, OBGYNs ended up coming down and sitting next to me in the ER. And they, for some reason, they never do this. This isn't like a thing. Um, they took me up to the maternity ward and they detoxed me in a maternity bed. I had like, so normally when you're in a detox, you're kind of locked in. Like you don't have the phone. You don't really have a ton of privileges. This was like a regular hospital stay. So like I had been using drugs for so long and now I end up in a hospital bed with a telephone and I'm so sick, like sicker than I probably have ever been. Um, and yeah, and they come in, the doctors look at me and they're like, your track record's garbage. Like you, there's no way that you're going to stay sober. And I don't blame them. I didn't blame them at all. Um, so I had been working at a coffee shop. Not the one you and I had worked at when we were younger, but I was working at another coffee shop because that's also something that I do. Um, and a girl had come in and wrote me a Facebook message and she said, if you are one of us, which I think you are, I go to a woman's meeting on Tuesday nights. So if you want to come, let me know. So at the time getting the message before I was in the maturity one, I was like, women's meeting? I don't have girlfriends. I hang out with the fellas. So I called her when I was in the maternity ward because I didn't have anyone else to, I didn't know who else to call. And she came to my bedside that day and she agreed that she was going to sponsor me and try to take me through the 12 steps um, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh my God. Amazing. Yeah. She was like the best. Um, Yeah. That summer it was great. I like. So this is while while you're pregnant and this is like your new friend and she's your sponsor. You're on the right path. You're pregnant. And then. How did it continue? So I, what I do is like I dive right in the middle of AA and I get in with the fellowship. So I start like making friends because that's easy for me. I gravitate toward people. Like I said, talk to a while for a talk back. What I didn't do was like I like left out that like spirituality part of like the whole program. Um, I thought that I was like hip to God because I went to Gate to Heaven and then I went to CCD when I moved to Braintree. And then I watched The Craft when I was like 14 or 15. So I thought I was a witch at one point in my life. So I I thought that spirituality, I had it, but I didn't. Like it looked like nothing, but I did stay sober. I had my daughter December 31st, 2013. And she's like the light of my life. But um, yeah, I wasn't working a solid program. And I, in January, I ended up going... Um, 
in for surgery because I had got mastitis, which is a breast infection from breastfeeding. And um, I had about five to six surgeries on my left breast and they put me on IV Dilaudid and then they sent me home with a bunch of medication. And like, again, all bets are off. Oh, see, I didn't realize that. I always was under the impression that when you had Frankie, that that was it. Wow. But I also didn't realize you had all those surgeries. And didn't they look at your history? Like, did you have to sign off on anything to say that you were sober now or? Yeah. So um, when I originally went in and had uh, like the first couple things done, I wasn't given any medication because of my history. Um, I was awake during the first major like incisions with like a team around my left breast and I was screaming. I've never experienced pain like that in my life. Um, not even labor was that bad. (laughs) Like not, I've never experienced. So the doctor, I I will remember her saying it. She goes, I don't care if she shot heroin today, she needs meds. And I did, I needed something prop. I mean, I definitely manipulated my way. I was buzzing the thing every five seconds for them to fill me up after, you know, I thought it was like a free lapse. Uh, Oh, I like that word. That's like, uh, yeah, that's clever. A free lapse. Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, I got this. They're giving it to me. Yeah, this is like, I'm meant to have this. And you're like, it's not my fault. I'm not choosing this. I have to get this surgery. So you could really talk yourself into that, justify. Oh, yeah. Name of my game. I'll talk, I'll talk myself <laughs> into anything. If it oh, benefits Jackie. So now Frankie's home and you're, you're having your surgeries. And so then you went home with the, the meds and what happened? So I was super mom because what opiates do to me is they give me, um, well, let me say, I thought I was super mom. So what opiates do for me is they give me this energy and I'm untouchable so I can change diapers, clean the house and I'm doing it all right. Um, So when the meds ran out, I obviously started to buy drugs off the street and the gig was up with Corey, my daughter's father at this point, he knows what's up. So he starts saying, what's going on? And I'm like, and he's like, well, we have, we, you can't get high. And I was like, okay, I won't, but you can't tell anyone because if you do, they're going to take the baby away from us. So I, again, manipulation, oh, I try God. to scare him mm-hmm. and, um, what ends up winding up happening. So he's still sober at this point. And, um, in September of, uh, 2014, I end up overdosing and she's in the middle of the bed with Corey and I, and Corey had, um, started using drugs a little before that day um and Corey woke up and I was dead and uh yeah he was like you were so gray I couldn't bring you back um so I woke up and there was paramedics and cops and there was everyone in my house and I just I remember just throwing up in, in my toilet and I have this like vivid memory of throwing up saying like I've become the one person I never wanted to be on my dad oh my god um, and, and the full circle moment. Yeah. I mean, that's when it really hit you because you even like all throughout this, you know, it's sprinkled in your story. You can see it all throughout that like your dad having these issues and your dad not being present was like a big contributing factor. And of course, we talked about how you were so good at taking accountability, but you know, you're also a child and things, you know, affect you and they, they shape you and mold you into who you are. So, I mean, you can't completely write off, you know, you know, our parents have a big effect on our lives. And so it's just like he was sprinkled throughout the whole story. And then right at the end, like, is that your rock bottom? Like that point where you were like, wow, I'm him. I wish. Yeah. So like that was definitely one of them. I wish I could say that like that made me get sober, but that's just, again, not my story. Um, 
I went, I love psych wards. Um, I like how comfortable you are in a hospital. Um, I like, I don't know, I make friends with the nurses. I'm still friends with all the nurses that were in the psych ward. Uh, so I have I to say you're a very personable person and you could like you 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 joke that you talk to the wall but you're such a warm and welcoming person and I even said at the beginning of this episode um when I recorded my intro I said and by the end of this episode you'll feel like Jackie's friend and not just a part-time friend like you are so that person <laughs> like you're just I could see you making friends like you're in a psych ward but you're making friends yeah it's just like crazy and um so I go to the psych ward and I honestly, at that point, like I was so ashamed of myself. It's like, so being a, being a drug addict is one thing. It's that's enough shame. The things that we do to get drugs, never mind being a mother who's a drug addict, right? That gets their kid taken away. The shame and guilt that I felt was like nothing internally I had ever felt before. It's a new, um, it's a new layer. It's a new, cause you have this new life now and you were, it wasn't like you were high the whole time you had Frankie. So like you had those moments of like so sobriety with her and that connection. So for her, so I'm assuming because that happened in the paramedics that your Frankie was taken away at that time because you were both using. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, um, I called, I remember having the fear of God when she was taken too. And I called my aunt Maureen and um, she's my godmother and she came and got her and I was so scared of my other family members. She was the only one and I have so much, I feel so bad still to this day that I called her because it was just so much pressure, but I didn't know what to do. Um, so she ended up taking Frankie and about, I want to say like 15 to 17 family members showed up at court the following week. Um, and the DCF worker looked at me and said, I've never seen this many people show up at a court hearing to take a child. Wow. She said, consider yourself so fortunate. But again, it was like, I'm still in it. I'm still kind of getting high. I was. Um, I was wicked grateful, but I still was like thinking like everything's going to be okay. Yeah. It's Um, like that mentality you just had all along, like sort of like, I don't want to say, I'm not, you're like better than like that feeling, like it's all good. Like, okay, now I know Frankie's taken care of. Like you're still, I feel like when you're using, it's not you. So if you're being selfish, yes, you are doing these things and you are technically being selfish, but it's not you. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like it is you, but it's, oh, it's yeah, under the sure. influence of this addiction. Yeah. But yeah, because Jackie now would never, you know what I mean? In my right mind make a lot of these choices or calls um so yeah i went to a psych ward i wasn't even sure if i wanted to get sober and um but i went and women in aa jillane being one of them who um started the part-time friends with um decided that they were going to move into my apartment with me because my daughter's father and i had split up and they were going to help me get custody of frankie back and i had to jump through hoops through dcf and these women helped me pay my bills and they helped me um you know become a woman again but like again this I did this teetering thing with the one foot out one foot in let's get a new boyfriend thing um so my sobriety without spirituality and and really doing any full work on myself it it looked just crazy and that's probably like so confusing for you too because like you're half in and half out of everything you're doing like you're getting high but not to the extent you were before so you're not full in there you're like you're doing meetings but you're not fully doing it to the fullest extent like you're Frankie's mom and you're doing it and you're jumping through the hoops, but like you're not sober. So you're not doing it to the hundred percent extent. So you're just like spreading yourself so thin over all these different things. And I'm sure it was just like a, a mental mess. 
Yes, you hit the nail on the head. It's exhausting. It's like literally exhausting trying to juggle all these things, especially when I look back because it's just my life today looks so different, so different. Um, as crazy as it can be, it's just I, I'm not exhausted internally anymore. Yeah, well, you're not like, like you're not lying. You're not manipulating. You're not trying to do this. You're not trying to run all around. You're not trying to do 100 things at once, but not actually investing in all any of them. It's just like a lot. And you were young. Like you were like in your 20s, late 20s, early 30s. Well, at this, this point, yeah, this point of my life, I'm 31. So what it looked like trying to get Frankie back, which I did end up getting her back. I had to go to mom's groups and I'm sitting there in, in mom's groups. And I'm like, this is, this is common sense. Like, again, the better than thing. Right. Um, I, I get into another relationship with someone I thought wasn't an alcoholic or a drug addict. It gets physical on both ends, you know, cause nothing's healthy. Nothing I ever do looks healthy at this point. Um, so yeah, that's like without a spiritual solution in my life, it's just, mental chaos and would you like agree or disagree like toxic almost like attracts toxic so like in other words if what you're putting out you get back like I'm a big believer of that in every way um so you know if you're putting out good you'll get good and so if you're like radiating this like toxic energy like people are going to be attracted to that and gravitate towards you and and then all of a sudden you look around and it's just like a, a full of toxic people in your life oh yeah, and you have to get rid of all those toxic people, which isn't easy either to get rid of people, you know what I mean, that don't provide purpose in your life yeah. to a degree. Um, so, yeah, it was just like a bunch of craziness, but I like didn't see it. Even when I got sober this time, I was still early on invested in, in bad choices because once you get sober, you don't become like a spiritual sparrow. Like you don't become <laughs> the spiritual being of nature. Like, yeah, you're not going to change I your whole make... person. Like you're not going to change who you actually yeah. are inside. Yeah. Yeah. So like what it ended up and I'll kind of speed up to what it ended up looking like was like, I got, um, a restraining order from trying to fist fight someone at the age of 31. Like I, uh, and I got Frankie back by the skin of my teeth manipulating, lying. Um, and so I get her back. She's two years old and like, and she's the light of my life. Like, that's the other thing. How do people get high with kids? It's like, cause that's what happens. That's my love for Frankie. There's no question. It's the, that's how powerful drugs are. And like, uh, that's something I would like stand up for you. And I were talking earlier about off air about things. Um, you know, if you put me on a lie detector test, I hate this line because people in meetings always say, if you hook me up to a lie detector mm -hmm. test, I would pass. But I didn't know how to stay sober. So I ended up getting high. And what my last day using looked like um, was January of 2016. And Frankie wakes up next to me because that's what we do. We, we sleep together. We co-sleep together. And at that point, and she looks at me and she says, I'm hungry. And I can't feed her because I'm, I'm so sick. And in my head, I'm like, how did I get here again? Mm. How, because there's this little girl that I love so much. Like she, I don't, she doesn't just like, she deserves a better mom. Like, and that's all I'm thinking. And um, so I call her dad, cause that's what I do. And he's sober at the time. Cause that's also another theme. And he stays sober and I don't. And I call him and I say, uh, I don't feel that good. Can you come and get Frankie? And um, 
he said, are you all right, Jack? Is everything all right? And I said, yeah, it's, it's fine. And then he was like, no, are you really all right? And so for some reason at that moment, I call it like my divine intervention, um, God or, or whatever. I had enough money to get high. I had the means to get high that day. And for some reason I said, you know what? I really need to go get help. I really need to go to treatment. And that was something I was always unwilling to do. I always wanted to hold on to the apartment. I always wanted to hold on to things because things made me feel better. Um, or so I thought. Mm-hmm. And this time I, I spit it out and then immediately I tried to retract it. I was like, but I'll go tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but wait a minute, wait a minute. It's just too much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's scary. Yeah. Especially I think I would imagine, now I don't know, like if you really know that's going to be the time, like it's, you almost need like another minute, like you got to take a beat, like because this is really it. Like, and as awful as the ride was, and as much as you don't want to be on it, it's still your ride and it's the ride you've been on. And it's almost like so hard to leave the thing you know, even if it's you know it's bad because it's just scary to go to the next thing and know you can never go back. Like the door is going to shut, lock, slam, and you don't want to go back in. Yeah, I would think it yes. needs a beat. It kind of deserves a beat. Like it's, an, it's like a moment you're going to remember. And like, you know what I mean? Four years later, talk about it on a podcast. You kind of have to like remember that moment and like sort of – because people are always going to ask you, like, what was the bo- rock bottom? What was the moment you knew? And it deserves, like, that beat. Yeah, and it did, and it had it. And, like, then what came out of my mouth was, well, what am I going to do with my washer and dryer? He was like, Stuff. fuck your washer and dryer. I'll buy you a new one when you stay sober. It's so funny, like, this stuff. You <laughs> don't want to give it away. That's where I was at. I was, like, so, I was about to die. <laughs> The priorities were not in order, (laughs) but it's like the safety and stuff, right? Like we hold on to things and we become like hoarders of our things because we think like the things make us whole or like they, it's like some accomplishment to have these things and I can't give them away. Like there's safety in that too. Like it's as crazy as it sounds and we're laughing like, and it's a washer dryer. And like, obviously that was like the last of your worries at that moment. It still makes sense though. Like in that moment you were just holding on to whatever you could. And yes, like probably maybe absolutely. even making up like a little like reason that you can't quite go right this second because we got to sort out what's going to happen with these things. Yeah. And I just didn't even have a second. He was just like, let's go. And I was like, all right. So, yeah. So I went and uh, I started praying and I just started asking for help. And I ended up going to New Hampshire and I went to a treatment center and I got um, I got connected. Uh, you know, they, I kind of came in and they kind of knew who I was because of my daughter's father and a couple of them, my friends in the sober community in Boston. So they kind of had an idea and, and things that were optional, like meditation and yoga, they told me it wasn't optional for me and that I had to go. And I thought, so I had to get really uncomfortable and I had to do a lot of things. But like, when I tell you um, the experiences that I had in this place were like, I'll never forget them. Yeah, this one, it it was a private facility, so I don't know, um, you know, and I don't think it makes a difference. I just believe that it was, this was the time of my life that like, it was ready to rock and roll. It was right, it was time to pull the trigger. Um, But yeah, so I get up there and I, and I, they kind of take you through the 12 steps kind of fast, or they take you through step work really fast. You know what I mean? So um, I get through and uh, I get asked to leave. I actually get kicked out. I get kicked out of the program, oh. um, but I wanted to stay sober really bad. 
Yeah. So that's the thing. And that's what I talk about a lot is like, I made a lot of mistakes, even this time in recovery. Um, but I wanted to stay sober and I'll never forget one of the direct, one of the women that worked there, she met me and I'm crying because I'm humiliated. Again, I get kicked out of somewhere or like, I, you know, I just can't keep it together. And she said, this doesn't have to deter you from doing the right thing. Just stay sober. And I got kicked out because I, just for the record, I passed a note from a guy, from a girl to a guy, and that was a no-no, and I lied about it because that's what I thought was, that's what I knew. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's good that you clarified because people may think you were kicked out for something much more serious than that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and it, and it was. And looking back, again, I, I see my part in it. That was a rule, I, and I lied about it. So it's like they had to ask me to leave, and... Uh, I went to another house and um, they had a lot of rules, but I finished my step work and I had a sponsor and I started making amends and that made me feel amazing because I was scared to death and I still have a lot of amends to do. But um, on top of that, I and I got kicked out of there too. I got kicked out of that woman's sober house oh, too. What'd because you do again, there? I don't follow rules. Yeah. I don't know how at this stage of the game to follow rules, but I continue my path and I go to another sober house because I want to stay sober so bad. And I just take these things like meditation and prayer and helping other women. And I just keep on implementing them everywhere I go. And yeah, little by little, I, I, I got my daughter back and, and, you know, A to B happened. I got a job. I got a, my job grew. I kept on doing the right thing and, and so on and so forth. And, and life got better, but I just, it, it took a long time. Oh, I imagine. And it's like you have to make these mistakes and, and every like step back feels so frustrating. And you're just like, am I ever going to get it together? But you do come out the other side and you did come out the other side. But I'm wondering, like, with the history of like rule breaking and not being quite able to like follow all the rules, even though you're following all the, the good ones and the big ones, and you know, but these places, they pull no punches. You have to follow all the rules, right? Like start to finish, big and small. You make, you lie, you got to go. Like they can't, you know, they can't, they draw the line in the sand and they can't go over it because they just can't yes. allow the people to do that. But um, so when you got out of that one though, so what changed? Like I know you're now you're implementing the things actually in life. You're actually doing the meditation, the yoga, the prayer, like you're finding that side of yourself. But like what's, did you, are you like fully out of that, like lying or not following the rules now? Like, or do you still find yourself sometimes? Is that just like a personality trait that you just kind of push it sometimes? So what I found with myself, um, was I was so this the sober house that I got kicked out of I was I was um I was I was on a guy contract right so I couldn't talk to guys so that also entailed me going to meetings in Boston and seeing men that I you know so there was like this line so then I got a second cell phone so I could have talked to my friends that were guys that's a rule that shouldn't have been broken so when I got called out for that I had to do a lot of work and like you know um I won't get all into it, but the fourth step is is writing all your resentments down. And then the other part of it is looking at your side of stuff. So that was like huge. And you talked about it earlier when you were like, not a lot of people own their shit. I had to own my shit um, because I, I just knew that it worked for a lot of other people. And if I didn't give it a hundred percent that I wasn't, I was too scared to get high again, to be honest. Um, so what it kind of looks like for me nowadays with the whole being dishonest is um, I do this practice where I exaggerate a lot too when I talk 
because I'm, you know, a mile a minute, da, da, da. and I'll be like, oh, and I drank, and I didn't have anything to eat today. I do it to my boyfriend all the time. I'm like, I'm so hungry. I haven't eaten, had anything to eat today. And then I'll go, just kidding. That was a lie. I actually had eggs this morning. So I do this practice where I call myself out on my bullshit. Oh, that's really good. I mean, again, like you like inspire me. I don't know if it's like all the like programs you've been through or like maybe like it's therapy or like just human growth and just like introspection looking at yourself. But that's like an insanely awesome way to do that. Like, you know, that's one of your weaknesses and you probably maybe don't even know why. And that's like a like now like your exaggerations or lies look kind of dumb. Like I didn't eat like it's nothing like it used to be. So it's already it's already so much better. But you're still even checking yourself with that stuff and just being like, Okay, let me slow down. Like, I'm going that, like, you can, like, stop yourself before it gets any more serious. Like, it's a lie about having eggs, but tomorrow it could be a lie about this, and the next day it could be a lie about this. I can't let this go. Yeah, because that's what it spirals for me. But you're almost, like, uh, holding yourself to the accountability that the people at those sober houses do. Like, they're strict, and they're no nonsense, and they don't let you break a rule, and now you're kind of, like, forcing that on yourself, which seems like it's a good practice. Yes, I try. (laughs) Okay, so then fast forward, you got Frankie back and now you've been sober for four years, right? Yep, so I celebrated um, in January this year of four years. Um, It was almost surreal. I thought I was gonna live my whole life with like, I I thought I was gonna always be on drugs or drink. I I did, that was just what I thought my life was gonna pan out to look like. And it's like crazy to be this sober. Well, first of all, congratulations, because four years is no joke. And it's like, it's an everyday thing. It's some, for some people I know, like they say, it's like an every hour thing, every minute, like every second, you're just taking it one at a time, whatever, whatever like phase you're feeling that day or at that time of life. So four years is amazing. Um, and then, so you don't, are you, when you say sober, I know because you're an open book, so I know you'll answer. You're sober of everything. So you don't even drink nothing? Nope, no drugs, no alcohol. Wow. I barely, yeah, I try, like, not to take Tylenol now. I'm a little, it gets a little crazy sometimes. Like, I get a headache, and Jeff's like, okay, pop a couple Tylenol. <laughs> yeah, and you just can't, I mean, I, it makes sense, though. Like, you're going to be a little trigger shy after everything you've been through. Like, if you've had surgery with no uh, anesthesia, I think you can handle, like, a headache yeah, with no Tylenol. that's what I'm saying. So I try. I try my best. Um, obviously, if something was ever needed, I would... I would probably either just, just cut, shut it down or like do my research around it and yeah. now it, you know what I mean? Just take it like one, yeah, one day at a time and one experience at a time, like cross that bridge when you get to it kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Since you've been sober, have you had any surgeries like outside of, of that? Like, have you had to, have you had to like face that question yet of like what you would do or like how you would approach it? Um, not really. Nothing crazy. I'm trying to think. No. And when you had your son, because you do have a new baby, little bubba. I do. Um, I do. Did you have like a, like, can you do epidurals? I know these are like naive questions, but I just don't know. Like, can you do that kind of stuff? Yeah. So you can get an epidural, but, um, I now this is funny because, um, one of my friends and I were just talking about this. I believe that they put a little something, something in the epidural, um, if you're a normal human being and not a drug addict, um, or if you obviously opt out of this, but um, so they just give me the epidural as is without the little something, something. And I don't know what exactly it is, but I, I, I'm almost a hundred percent positive. There is something in an epidural. 
But you were able to do it with your son and it was no problem because it's in your history and your medical Yeah, they history. didn't give me whatever it was. Yeah. And I didn't have to take um, any Percocet. I didn't, I didn't tear down there, so I didn't have to take anything after. <laughs> the, yeah, God or whoever was shining down on you like, this girl's been through it. Let her not at least tear so she doesn't have to be tempted. Yeah. I was like, thank you so much. So how was having your son? Okay, so now you're four years sober and um, you're with your boyfriend. Is your boyfriend, and you don't have to answer this if it's a, like private, I know it's anonymous, but is he in the program or did he? Did, is he yeah, in? yeah, okay. he is. And it's funny because I didn't meet him in a program where <laughs> I didn't walk up to him at a meeting and, and introduce myself. Um, I actually saw him at a Dunkin' Donuts drive-thru and I thought he was just handsome. And I just, <laughs> I did some investigating, but um yeah, so yeah, he's sober, and um, my having my son um, was so before I right before I had him, the sober house that I got and kicked out of. I am super close with the owner. She was amazing um, to me, and she's a she's a dear friend. Um, and she ran a retreat down in Hammerock Beach in Marshfield, and a bunch of the alumni that I uh, had gone through the house with or had just, you know, maintained friendship with or some women that I didn't even know went. Um, and what came out of that experience was I was so full of fear to have my son because I never wanted the story to repeat itself. I didn't want history to repeat itself. I was scared that I was going to be a failure. I was scared right after, like, like after I had him that, you know, something was going to give and, and Jackie um, wasn't going to be able to handle it. And and that all came out during that retreat. And it was like the most amazing thing. I was able to get really vulnerable and, and just, you know, really let it all out. And that was like huge for me. I'm sure that was like a huge burden you were carrying too. Like, now you have trauma related to having Frankie at a young age because Frankie is there in the bed and you know what I mean? And you had an experience where you woke up and then Frankie was taken away. And I mean, I'm, that's that constitutes as a major trauma in your life. And so, I mean, I think it's only natural that you here you are again having another baby. And like, of course, you're going to have that fear. It's like human nature. Something happened once and it was horrible. You don't want it to happen again. And so you just can't help it. So it's nice that you were like in a safe community where you felt that you could become vulnerable. Because, you know, sometimes you can't do that with some of your friends. Like you just, it's not going to come up in conversation. So if you're like surrounded by women and people who understand what you're going through and they can relate and they don't judge and you can just like sort of go there, it's nice that you had that experience because you needed to heal from that trauma with Frankie because you didn't want to do it with the new baby. For sure, for sure. And like you said, nail on the head again, it's like, I, and it all came out, like I knew it was like, like, I knew it was building up inside, but when I let it all out, I just remember sitting there crying and I was like, this is what's really going on. Um, that was like my aha moment. That's Ooh. when I knew everything was going to be okay. Um, because if I hadn't let it out, who know, like who knows, but I'm glad that I, you know, have the awareness to be like, okay, Jack, let's call yourself out on this bullshit that you hide. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's so true because I think that like, well, first, I'm a huge advocate for therapy in general. I feel like it should, I was talking about this with my, on the, on the episode last week, um, 
with my friend, we were talking about life after miscarriage and we were saying like, that's a major trauma. And then she's a nurse practitioner. And we were saying how we're always like hawking therapy on people, like telling I, like, anyone I encounter, I'm like, I think that therapy should be part of like, when you go to the dentist to get a checkup at a, as a little kid, you go to therapy. Like as a little kid, you only have to go twice a year, but maybe as things happen, and then it would become like such a part of society and so normal, it would end the stigma. Like people could get vulnerable like that. It wouldn't be so like quote unquote weird. Like it would be more normalized. And then you wouldn't have to have these moments of like built up to the point of like about to explode like a champagne bottle with the cork about to fly off. Like it wouldn't have to get to that point. Um, so I feel like anyone who's out there who's considering therapy, I, I say this every week and I'll say it every week until I die. Uh, it's like, I just think that everyone should be in therapy if they, you know what I mean? And even if you don't think you need it and you don't have to be at your worst to ask for help. Um, so that's just something that I always want to advocate for. So it's just, I'm so grateful that you had that moment, like that aha moment. And it kind of, it was like full circle again, you know, but this time it was the release and you knew it was going to be okay. And it was like a sign. seems like you've had a lot of moments of like divine intervention, whether or not you believe in God or whatever. It's like something is coming down and, and helping you. Oh yeah. And, and again, like I had to get weird, right? I had to get uncomfortable and start talking about God and spirituality. Um, you know, I started to go to like Buddhist temples and doing meditation. Um, I went on a, on a Christian retreat um, for three days, like a spiritual retreat um, to strengthen my relationship. But um, yeah, I've had so many. I, I started a, a God book when I when I got sober at that place in New Hampshire because a woman said to me, because I said, how am I supposed to develop our spirituality? Like, how am I supposed to do this at 31? Like, how does someone just do, like, I don't understand. Because I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, as we all know. So I disagree. Said, I vastly made- disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but she made the comparison for men, right? She said, you like to date guys. I said, yeah. She goes, pretend every time that you see God work in your life, say thank you. Like if you went on on a date and someone opened the door for you, you'd say thank you. When you see God work in your life, say thank you. And I still literally do these moments all the time. When when Frankie and I have these moments, which is few and far between during homeschooling and quarantine, um, when she has these moments where she's like, I said the other night, I'm like, you know, sorry, sometimes I get upset and I like can't be a good mom. She goes, you're the best mom for me. I say, I literally start to tear up. I try to hold it back. And she goes, mom, don't cry. And then I say, I say in my head, thank you. Like I still carry that practice because to me, again, doing these, the behavioral stuff and keeping a close contact with like who I choose to call God, that's what works for me. If that doesn't work for someone else, that's their story. I'm like, Go ahead, sister, sister friend, rock on. Like, you know what I mean? Some people have spirit guides. Some people have, you know, Buddha. It it depends. But like whatever you can get down with. And therapy, 100%. I think that's true. Whatever you can get down with. That's perfectly said. Because, you know, I feel like our parents' generation, like my parents were like super religious, but it just came so naturally to them because that was always part of their lives. For our generation, it's different. Like we went to Catholic school when we were little. Yeah, because that's what everybody did from where we're from at that time. Like... That's just what we did, but it's hard to like put that into practice as an adult when you're struggling and it, it seems so like fantastical sometimes like, okay, but I'm living in this real moment, this real scary moment and like I can't always call on this thing that I can't see. So it's nice that you like didn't just settle for like, oh, I have to do this because you know my program said it has to be God and it has to be this one way and this one thing. It's like, no, you found what works for you, like gratitude, like seeing kindness, spreading kind, like appreciating the moments, not being too good, not being like, you know, just like appreciating. 
and actually being vulnerable and humble to say like thank you like that was intervention that was my god like whatever that may be so I think that's beautiful and it's so nice that you see it with Frankie (laughs) so sweet but it's it's so great because like you're not an alcoholic right and you do this whole podcast that's like on wellness and getting better and like you do this all this motivation and you're just a normal person so I'm like wow kudos to you because I had to fucking you know shoot heroin to find God like God you're just a normal person that just wants to help other people in your own way and and, and provide a message to your audience of wellness and, and health and and prosperity if you will but like. I get blown away by normal people that do good things, to be honest. <laughs> no, everybody yeah. everybody has their trauma, you know, and everyone has their story and the reasons that they do the things they do. One thing I admire about you is that you are an open book. I'm not as open, um, and I'm trying to be, and that's, like, why I like doing the podcast and, like, having people on and, like, connecting with, um, because I never talked about, like, my fertility journey until last week when I had my, my girlfriend on and we talked about miscarriage, and I was like, okay, well, she's doing it. It kind of, like... You know, when you come out into the street and you kind of like can coax your friend to come too, like come with me, like I'll hold your hand, it, it'll be okay. Um, so I love these honest conversations and, and I hope to one day be like as open as you are. And that's one of the reasons that I motivate people. Like I try, well, I try to motivate people like do this, be you, do scary things. Like you can do scary things. And when I'm like putting them on my social media or saying them, like I'm also saying them to myself because like I need the reminder and like I need the push and I need that motivation. So it's almost like selfish that I'm doing it. But like, let me do it publicly so other people can benefit, too. And we'll all just kind of be on this like crazy journey together. Sure. Can I ask you a question? Sure. So do you guys, she's a podcaster. The tables have turned. I know. know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have to. Only because it was topic of conversation in one of my family discussions this week. Do you think that you're not as open? And I don't know, like, I know your parents, I know who your parents are, wonderful people. I don't know them to the level of this. Do you think, okay, ready? Hold on. Actually, I'm going to retract it. Okay. Growing up, right, this Irish Catholic family, right, we don't talk about a lot, but everything's good. Mm-hmm. Was it like, I know you and your mom are super close, but do you think that you're not as open because of the way that you grew up a little bit? Definitely. Like that's definitely a trope of like being from where we're from. That's like a huge thing is like, it's all good. And like you put on a good face and it's all good. Um, but the other thing is um, to answer that question is like, I think the reason I didn't do a lot of stuff is because I was scared of them. So like uh, maybe be- like, I'm not open about some things, but like they're not they're not like these kind of things. Like they're not like drug things or drinking things. They're like fertility things and like life things and like my husband has a terminal illness things. Like I don't always talk about those kind of things because of that like Irish like it's all good, it's all great, like that kind of like picture you're trying to paint. I think though because of who my parents are and because of where we're from and my dad is like a big gruff rough guy. Um I was like afraid and like I'm so close to my mom but when I was like a teenager I was so afraid of my mom like I just didn't ever want to disappoint them and because like drugs was such a big thing from where we're from my mom would make me promise her every day that I wouldn't do drugs like promise me you won't promise me you won't because she knew like she was older she knew nothing's gonna stop like the person next door from doing it it could happen at this house too and it can happen at the house down the street and it and you know what I mean and it's no one is exempt and it's like it doesn't matter like who your parents are how much money you have where you're from like this can affect any family like it's it brings everyone down to the same level and so i think i just um 
just didn't try or do many things because I was just so afraid of disappointing them. And I think uh, too, like, I think that's part of the reason why even now, like I'm such an overthinker. I'm like, so like anxious, like, so like afraid to like take the next step. And a lot of times I just don't take it because I'm just scared. But that's like built in from childhood of like, I don't want to do the thing because I'm scared of the consequence. And like, even with my husband, like things will come up, like, I'll be like, oh, like we'll get into like an argument or something and I'll be like, and then I got in trouble. And he's like, you got in trouble? Like you're 33, like you're not in trouble with me. Like, and I was like, I know. And he's like, oh my God, you sound like you're like 12. And I'm like, I know, but like, that was always my fear of like being in trouble. So like now my husband's mad at me, I'm like, and now I'm in trouble because I said that. And he's like, you're not in trouble. Like you're 33 years old, you're definitely not in trouble. <laughs> so yeah, I mean like definitely it goes back to childhood and like, yeah, like where we're from is like, you know, and I'm sure like many people who are from where we're from are nodding along with this and being like, yeah, like I get it. Because either like you had the parents who were so like strict and had such high expectations of you that you were just, too, you just didn't do it. Or you had the parents that maybe had similar struggles and then you went down maybe a similar path. Like there's different, you know what I mean? Like there's just different types and just like different routes that people take and yeah, I do think that is part of it, though, for sure. And, like, why I don't want to share. And, like, even when I did my episode about anxiety and depression, I, like, asked my mom if it was okay with her before. And I'm 33. And she's like, yeah, of course. And I'm like, well, I don't want you to be, like, embarrassed or, like, disappointed. And she's like, but it's true. And I'm like, I know, but don't you remember? Like, it's almost like she forgot. Like, she got more progressive and I stayed back there. <laughs> That's good, though. No, I just, I was just curious. It came up in a talk with one of my family members. And sometimes I don't think the older generation realizes I know. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, you know, like luckily, like my family, like my immediate family, my brothers and I, we have not like gone down that this road that we're talking about on this episode, but like it just as easily could have been us. And I think that's one of the reasons now that my parents in their older age, they always say like how grateful they are, like, because they know, like, I'm sure when, when we were all younger and it was just kind of like rolling the dice with the kids who were going to try and the kids who weren't like, I'm sure they were just holding their breath, like, for 10 years, you know what I mean? Like while all of us went through teenage and 20s. Yeah, it's scary. It's scary when I look at the, when I go to family meetings sometimes, um, it's heart-wrenching to look at the other side of it yeah. because the things that drug addicts put their family members through, sleep, and I put my family through sleepless nights. I mean, I cleared bank accounts. Um, you know, I did some really awful, awful things. Yeah. So to watch people's parents in pain um, or have parents lose their child and being a mother now, it's, it's, I can't even imagine. Well, that's what I was going to ask you too. Like now you're a mom and you're like sober. And I know you said like, it's not nothing crazy four years, but four years is amazing. Like that is a big chunk of time. And I know it's like, you can't get ahead of yourself. And that's like a big part of it. I'm sure like you can't get cocky with four years. You have to take it still one day at a time. Um, but now that you're a mom and like, it's a little, you have a little bit of distance from it now. Like, do you ever think or fear like, okay, Frankie's getting older. Like, you know, even the video we saw on Instagram today, she's dancing. She looks so much older already. Like she's just like every day growing. Do you ever like have that fear in the back of your mind that this could happen? Oh, 1 million percent. Um, one of my defects I would say is, um, I pass judgment, right? on others and myself, right? So I do this thing where I look at her behaviors as a six-year-old child and I'm like, oh my God, that's what I do. Oh my God, that's what I did. And I just, you know what I mean? And I had to stop doing that because I do 
believe in manifestation. I believe in energy and stuff like that, right? So all I can do is be the best version and try to instill in her things like love and kindness, not to sound corny, but like literally, because she is six going on 16. And some people say, oh, my kid's really smart. So Frankie's does well in school. She's not the super smart kid in class where she knows all the answers, right? She's the kid in class that is socially apt because she's been around so many adults her whole life. Um, she can carry a conversation like no other. Um, and I don't say that to, to boast about my kid. I say that because that's the truth. And it makes sense, right? I mean, we were scary. talking it's about really how scary. you're... Yeah, that is scary. We're talking about how you're so social. I mean, it makes sense that she's like has that genetically and just like in your household seeing how you behave and how you act and how you approach people and approach life and they pick that up and so it makes sense that she's you know very socially capable um but yeah it's scary too because you think like wow i see so much of myself in her and but i only want to see like the good things and like i'm maybe you're like afraid to see the bad you know the bad side of it totally totally and i try to i also try to do this thing where um I try to show love, right? I feel like I wasn't told I love you all the time growing up. So I try to do not, I knew that everyone loved me. It was, you know what I mean? Yeah. I had no question. I wasn't told it all the time. So I do practices, you know, I do affirmations with her. I try to do all these things. I do meditation. I try to do yoga. You had that woman on that talked about the children's books and mm -hmm. stuff. And that stuff is stuff that I really try to implement in parenting. And I don't do the best job. I do too much screen time. The stuff I fall short on because I spend too much time on my phone. I'll be completely honest. Um, but I do try the, the best that I can. And I just pray that she stays um, and, and he stays on the straight and narrow because who knows, he could just be, he could be a, like, give me a run for my money like this one is. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, every kid's different. You just don't know. But I just think, you know, when they said, what do they say? Like, when you know better, you do better. And like, every generation is going to get a little bit better at like parenting and like, looking back at the things you didn't have in your childhood or things you didn't hear or things you would have liked and and you'll do that with your children and then you know frankie will grow up and do that with her children and so on and so forth and it will always get better um so you're really like you know you should give yourself more credit because it sounds like you're hard on yourself like you know i love your honesty but sometimes it's too too hard on yourself like everyone does too much screen time everyone's on their phone too much like you are not alone in that like you're not crazy or weird like you're not failing or falling short you know what i mean and that's part of it and, and that's that stuff's will, will, I hate to say this, that stuff will be what keeps Frankie normal. Like she's not gonna be that like over the top person, you know what I mean, balance, right? Like duality, you can be the person who meditates, who goes on retreats, who like, you know, does all, a whole day off their phone, but then the next day you might be like the person laying on the couch like and the child is on an iPad and you're on your phone and like that's also okay. Because like who can yeah. do the other way every single day for 18 years, like forget it, like it's impossible. And if you, yeah, if you set yourself up for that expectation, you'll always fall short and you'll always feel like a failure. And like, so you just have to like definitely let go of that, like that that's a failure in any way, shape or form, because you know, like times that you've truly like dropped the ball and you can see that that's different than using screen time. Like, come on, like of all the oh, things yeah, you've no. been through, like that's nothing, like you're doing so <laughs> great. And that brings me to my next point because you are a mom and like, hearing your story, like, and I didn't know, like, I knew maybe, like, you know, like, 
parts of that or like because you're open on your podcast as well the part-time friends but um you know we got into the nitty-gritty of like some of the darkest times and like specifics um but now looking at you as a mom like looking at you now like at our age now i look at you as like a mommy entrepreneur like you have like your your brand is being a mom and so like I just like it's so amazing to see how far you've come from when you had that pregnancy test coming out of the bathroom crying having to admit two secrets to now you know what I mean this many years later and Frankie's Frankie's still so little like you still have so much time like you know what I mean like that's just a blip on the radar of like the life you're going to have with Frankie and the life you're going to have in general and it's just like amazing to see like you are the living example of turning it around like pivoting and being adaptable rolling with it and just really like turning it on its head because not only did you just say like, I'm gonna be a mom and I'm gonna be sober and, and present for Frankie, I'm gonna be like documenting this and I'm gonna give her the life that I, you know, that she deserves to have and that I wanna give her. And I'm gonna like be the best me for her. And like, you're pushing yourself, you're doing new things, like you're putting yourself out there. And I think that's just like so beautiful. Do you feel proud or do you just feel like it's just regular? <laughs> oh, I definitely, thank you. You're like the kind of human, literally. The conversations even I have like, over the computer with you it's just you're so uplifting but no I appreciate you saying that and no I have I mean I'm like super blessed like I do have these moments like I said I thought I was gonna do drugs and drink alcohol forever um I didn't even know if I was gonna live to be 30 at one point in my life that and that's the truth um so yeah no I I I do think I'm not that hard on myself sometimes you know the comparison social media is a bitch in in terms of um you know all the comparisons you look at all these people and their houses right and then you look at their kids and you know I do this thing where I'm like am I doing enough am I okay but like in the end at the end of the day like you said it's like from what I've been through like I'm I'm pretty sure I'm doing all right yeah you got this on lockdown for sure (laughs) Um, and so when Frankie's older, are you going to broach the subject with her? Are you going to let her come to you? I know you're going to definitely be an open book and honest with her because that's just your nature, but are you going to bring it up to her when she gets to that age where you start to talk to your kids about like sex and drugs and drinking, or are you going to sort of like, just let her ask you questions and you'll just answer as she asks you. So let me start off by saying today we were in the car and we're on a ride and she starts asking me, um, she wants to know, this is verbatim, let me know the details as, well, as to why you and your mom don't talk. She wants the deeds. Right? So I said, when you're old, I said, mom wasn't being the best, best version of herself for a long time. She wasn't being a mom. She wasn't being a great friend. She wasn't being a good daughter. I said, sometimes we all make mistakes. Well, what kind of mistakes did you make? And she's so these six are the questions years six. old. Oh my six. God. So then I say, my, my answer to that is, well, when when you're older, daddy and I will talk because I have an amazing co-parent relationship with him. Um, We, you know, we have our bumps in the road, but for the most part, we're on the same page. And um, so I said, when daddy, when you're older, daddy and I will sit down and we'll have a conversation and we'll talk. And she goes, no, 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 no. I don't want to talk to daddy. I want to talk to you. Me and you are going to talk about your mom. It's not dad's mom. So we don't need to include dad. Oh my I'm driving gosh. down 93 and I literally, I want, I was like, this is, this is it. This six, is- Jackie, six. You have 12 more years. I thought you were going to say maybe when she's 16, you guys are going to talk about this. She is not waiting. She wants to know no, the deeds. She, she said, give answers. me the details. 
So what did you say? Yeah. Did you leave it at that, that you were going to wait till she's older or? Yeah, she, she like let it go a little bit. Um, she's really into it right now. She wants another pet, even though we have a dog. Um, and my mom and my grandmother have my dog that I bought when I was younger. So she wanted, she was like, is it, is it up for debate to take the dog? And I was like, no. She's like, well, could I talk to your mother, who's my grandmother, about the dog? I'm like, no. She's like, what about your sister? Could I? And I'm like, well, I think my sister doesn't live in the house anymore. You know, and she wants to know why they don't want relationships with her. Would she talk to me? I don't have the, I said, probably, of course they would. I don't have all the answers for her, and yeah. I don't want to go into an in-depth conversation with my six-year-old um, and give her too much information. Yeah. I want her to be a kid and be okay and not worry. But she's she was happy when she was asking the question. She wasn't like, she wasn't asking or, with or like any kind of, anxious. yeah, there was no like fear involved with it. She was just genuinely curious and it seems like you're raising a very confident girl who advocates for herself and you know, she's not going to make any bones about it, but does your mom, I know you don't have a relationship with your mom's sister at this point. Do they have a relationship with Frankie or do No, um, I haven't spoke to them. I don't know if, um, Frankie is have like, I, uh, she has come in contact with them, but I don't think so. And like, that's their story. You know what yeah. I mean? That's who knows what the future will hold. Right. You know, I met my dad when I was 26. Um, I mean, I had met him when I was younger, but like, I wanted a relationship, um, when I was 26. And then, then I stepped away because of my drug use and he was still in a bad place. Um, and then I was able, when I was, when, he died two years ago and I was able to make um, an amends to him on his deathbed. Um, so like, who knows what the future will hold um, as far as relationships with them. But um, yeah, I just, I know I had to let my side, you know, just go as far as like expectations because mm -hmm. I used to use that as an excuse for a long time. So I just don't want her to have any expectations or preconceived notions as to why they don't talk to her or aren't around. Right. And I think it's like you hit the nail on the head too. And I, I love that like notion of just like keeping your side of the street clean and like worrying about what you can do because you can't change like how your mom feels about things, your sister, if or not, like whether or not they want a relationship with your children. Um, you know, you can't control that. And I think it's nice that you're not letting like that hang you up or like get caught up in that too much. And you're very honest with Frankie in a developmentally appropriate age, you know, in a developmentally appropriate way. Um, and like you said, like that's their journey. Like if they don't want to make that effort and, and who knows what the future will hold, like you said, because think about where you were five years ago and where you are today. And like think about all the hope that if you keep the hope and you just like keep doing what you need to be doing, who knows what five more years might look like. And that's actually one of my questions. What do you hope that your life will look like in five years? So five years, um, I would like to still be sober <laughs> yeah. and be a present good mom. Um, other than that, you know, I really, um, I fell in love with the idea of me doing some sort of businessy. So it's funny when I got sober in my whole life, I've always said I'm destined for greatness, right? That's been like my mantra, right? I didn't get sober to like, be a nobody, not a nobody. I shouldn't say that. That's kind of harsh. But I really have said my whole journey, right? That I'm destined for greatness, something great. So whether it's being a mom, is that that's what it's supposed to be? So be it. But I truly feel I didn't know what a podcast was. Like literally, I probably listened to one. Then I saw that you had a podcast <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, 
Caitlin has a podcast, so I started listening. Um, but like when we started this whole thing, I had no idea what doors were going to open. And not that like a ton have opened, but some have. Um, I'm just a girl from the Boston area. You know, you guys have heard my story, right? And I have people listening to me and I'm grateful. I'm grateful that 10 people tune in, never mind 700 sometimes an episode. So like, um, yeah, I don't know. As far as like the future, I guess I would like to be married. <clears throat> so I know Jeff's probably not listening because he doesn't Jeff, listen to any podcast. <laughs> but I'd like to be married, um, hopefully own a home. And again, material things don't fill the void. But those are goals that I've always wanted my whole life. Um, and I know, again, they won't fill the hole in my soul type of deal. But those are just things that I, I would like to obtain <laughs> but it's also like different it's a bad thing yeah it's different than last time you know before it was the material things were like keeping you like and you were in this whole like toxic world now you're like i want to own a home because i have children and i want to be married and i want to start like plant roots and like grow in this home and that's like a goal many people have you know what i mean like that's on my goal list for five years so it's not like it's no longer because it's like a material thing you're not trying to fill a void but you are trying to like create the life you want to live and something that does include materials um but it's just yes. like you're approaching them in a different way they're not holding that same weight in your life like they're not the end-all be-all it's just something you would like for, for sure. your family so wait tell us about jeff because this it's you're in a very healthy relationship i know like men was a very like part of your story and like toxic and it can sometimes be like messy but it seems like you're in a very healthy happy relationship and now again this is on instagram and we know instagram can be deceiving but you're an open book so i i i believe everything you put out because you are who you are so you like have that authenticity and and you know believability because this girl's going to tell you how it is so if she's if this looks beautiful it is beautiful so don't get it twisted i like i'm not out there like bird papaya I don't know what her name is. You know who I'm talking yeah. about. Showing my stretch mark and rock and rolls. That's not me, right? Like, I, I, I'm i not down with that. I'm just not comfortable with myself in that role. But what I am comfortable with is saying, like, I have a really amazing relationship and I'm really proud of that, right? Because, again, like you said, guys, huge part of my story, toxic, um, just bad. I was, I was abusive. They were abusive. Um, it just, you know, the cheating, the, the getting over on people. I met Jeff, like I said, it was Dunkin' Donuts. I searched for him on Facebook like a creep. Um, the end is history. <laughs> and, you know, I've never had to worry. I've never had to, like, think that he was doing anything wrong. Sometimes I get a little crazy, usually around my period, and I'll be like, you still love me, right? You know what I mean? But, like, he loves me. I don't ever think anything crazy. Um, he's so good to Frankie. We took it kind of slow, which was another thing. Um, I saw him once a week for six months, I think, or a little like less than that. Um, it wasn't a lot. We did like one sleepover and that's when I saw him. He courted me. I didn't sleep with him right away. He didn't kiss me on the first couple of dates. Um, the first time he slept over, we didn't touch. Those were big things for me. I had to like put up some boundaries in my life and in the my ideals and what I wanted in a relationship and what I deserved. Because I'll be honest, I've had one night stands. I've done a lot of shameful things, um, but look where that got me. So I knew that I needed to change some things when it became to relationships as well. And and, and 
yeah, like I said, he's so easygoing. He hates social media. Um, <laughs> he couldn't be any more my opposite. He's very quiet, but we love to dance and we have fun. And like, that's super important to me. And he's like a fucking amazing dad. I mean, we get on each other's nerves. I- I'm a mess. He's not. Um, he gets mad that I like, you know, change my clothes 80 times a day and leave them on the floor. But like, you know, it works. And I'm like super grateful that I found someone that I like want to spend the rest of my life with because I thought that wasn't obtainable either. That's so amazing Like to think about how far you've come. And it's just, it's so beautiful to see that all the things you've learned, you really put them into action and look at what it, where it got you. And like, if that's not like, you know, motivation enough to keep going, like, wow, I, I learned these things. I made these changes and it's like really working out. And because you are destined for greatness, like you have to stay on this path because it's just so beautiful. And like, you, and I'm going to post pictures too. And I'm sure you guys are going to check out Jackie on Instagram, but they're like literally the most beautiful couple with the most beautiful children. Like it, I'm like, okay, all right, enough already. Hashtag family goals, hashtag mom goals. <laughs> You're too nice. Oh my God. It's so it's true. Some of it's face tune. <laughs> oh, that's all of us. Come on. Even the, <laughs> even everyone who loves wellness and honesty and transparency, the little face tune sometimes like we're human. Um, okay. So, um, okay. So tell us about your podcast, the part-time friends, new episodes every Monday. Love it. It's hilarious. So different than mine. Everyone needs to go check it out. I'm always like, oh my gosh, I want to be funny like Jackie. I want to be real like Jackie. I want to be Jackie Donovan when I grow up. (laughs) Oh, please. No, I no one's saying that. But no, I just, so we started a podcast, the part-time friends. Um, it started off with a journey of three of us, um, that were in a group chat kind of talking shit all the time. It's now JD and I, who JD was not a founding member. Um, I'm still good friends with Tony and Jelaine, but um, I found a passion in podcasting. And what it looks like is we are two friends that bring on a third friend every week to share um, with our audience something new, um, whether it be their story or um, their forte, if you will, what they're good at. Um, yeah, so it's I try to keep it like we have local people on here. And then we just had a girl that was on, Sammy from Netflix that was on. So I really want to try to get, you know, as many different types of people. Um, I love meeting new people, as we all know, through this episode, we <laughs> talked about talking to a wall. But um, I just think that there's so many interesting people. So it's just given me um, a platform to really broadcast it yeah and I feel like this was always like part of your personality right like I mean you're so good at making friends it's come so easily to you you could talk forever like you're funny you have like that quick wit personality like in a way like um the things that maybe got you in trouble before like you know the way you're able to talk your way into things and this and that when you take those skills and you put it to something like an like an entrepreneurial fashion like I'm gonna start this business I always say like I wish I had that in a way like I'd be too shy to be like, hey, like, let me reach out to this person with a million followers. Like, what's the worst that can happen? But you do it. And because you have like that, that like, you know what I mean? Bravery. Like you have that, like you have the balls to do it. Like you just put yourself out there. Like you're very down to earth. People love that and appreciate it. When you were talking to Sammy now, I I mentioned it at the intro of this episode, but um, you had recently had Sammy on from The Circle and she was a million followers on Netflix, Netflix show. And her and Jackie were talking like they've known each other for 15 years. And I text Jackie and I'm like, okay, like, how are you guys not best friends? Like, that was a perfect fit. Like, you you could talk to anyone. Like, this this platform is perfect for you because you make people feel comfortable. Like, you make them feel welcome. You make them feel calm. 
And you have like a way of having people open up. I haven't opened up my podcast at all, 25 episodes, and you're like, let me ask you a question. I'm out here spilling my guts. Like you're, you have that way and that not everyone has that. And so I really think like podcasting is going to be a great platform for you to continue to grow because you have like a certain set of skills that not everyone's born with and you really can't teach. Like you either have it or you don't and you have it. And so I'm just like excited to see where else it's going to take you. But another thing I like about your podcast is that it has that hometown feel like you have on the people with the Boston accents. I love it. It makes me feel like I'm home. They're talking about like there are things that are just starting up, but then you'll have someone on from Netflix. Then you'll have on someone like who's one of your best friends. They're hilarious. Then you'll have like it just goes back and forth like and because it's so open ended and everyone could be your part time friend, like you could have anyone from like the president down to like your best friend of your whole life. That's what I love about it. It's a great concept. And there's really no limits when you do it that way. So it's kind of like genius. Hey, you're so, see, I could rattle off 80 million things about you that I don't have. I think we could all, you know what I mean, do that when it comes down to it. But I appreciate um, it all because, again, I do the whole, every episode, I sit there and I go, I need to, like, pick up a dictionary and learn more words and not say like and not say um. But I also, and, like, and then people talk about my accent. And it's, like, I've tried to, like, tone it down a little bit. I really have, but it's hot. It's I like, love this it. Is, who I am. Oh, that's who you are. Patty Lou still has her accent. That ain't going nowhere. <laughs> Some people, it just Patty. doesn't. I don't know, though, because, you know, you're like, you're like my kryptonite in this way, because when people say, why don't you have a Boston accent? I say, it's because I went to school in Braintree. And so it was like sort of teased out of me. And then I'm like, but Jackie lived in Braintree and she has the accent. So like, I really can't use that one anymore. So I don't know why I don't have like a stronger accent, but I think I like practice. So I wouldn't. Yeah, people say that I should practice all the time. Literally, people DM me being like, you should really try to um, loosen the accent a little bit. Yeah, I've gotten that. Tony used to say, Tony used to write it on our I, I, uh, our podcast reviews. Jackie with a fake accent. Oh my God, fake? <laughs> no, <laughs> you are not fake. That's one thing that you are not. Okay, so everyone needs to check out Jackie's podcast, The Part-Time Friends. I want to play a quick game. I know I've kept you for so long. Quick, quick, oh, quick sorry. game, just getting to know you. So it's called Mama Said, because Jackie's the mama. Let's see what she says about it. Let's get to know our part-time friend, Jackie Donovan. What is your biggest pet peeve? Oh, my God, I have so many, I feel like. Um, messy rooms in the back of pictures. That is so disgusting. I fully agree. Um, what's something you wish people knew about you? That I'm so good at singing Ariel from Disney, um, Little Mermaid, part of your world. Okay, we will definitely have to be getting back to that one day. Okay, uh, what's the most unusual thing someone would find in your purse? A warm cheese stick. <gasps> Excuse I, me? It's so fucking nasty. Like you, kids, I always, I always put cheese string in my... It's so nasty. But you're not putting it in there because you want it warm, right? It just stays in there and then it gets warm? No, it just ends up staying there because I'm a dirt ball. <laughs> All right. If music played every time you walked into a room, what would song would it be? Sounds like it might be Ariel part of this one part of your world <laughs> um i feel like um what's that song there she goes um uh, there she goes again you know what i'm talking about I there she goes yeah. <laughs> that's a great song yeah, I popped into my head that's a really good one um i always wanted to be uh like, tall and tan and dark and love <laughs> i want that's that so one good. see that's a good one i want that one for me you can steal it you can steal it um, thank you so much if you could be friends with any celebrity who would it be oh my god right now honestly and i, I alarm bostic honestly she's oh. like really uh, she's made a profound impact in the way that i view um entrepreneurial i can't talk um 
things and you and I have had conversations. Oh yeah, we love great. Lauren. And you guys might know her as the Skinny Confidential if you don't know her real name. Lauren Bostic runs Skinny Confidential. She is amazing. Um, yeah, that's like hashtag goals in, in every form. Um, who's your dream guest for part-time friends? Oh, um, I don't know. I don't really have one. Yeah. I wish that I could tell you. I mean, probably someone on like an A-list celebrity only because I think if I achieved that, I'd feel like I've made it type of deal, which isn't the truth, but I'd still feel that way. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, even having Sammy, I was awesome. She has a million followers. So like, I'm wondering who you're going to get next. You know what I mean? There's really yeah. no limits for our girl and the part-time friends. Um, okay, Jackie, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and for being so open, honest, and real. I know it's not always an easy conversation to have, but it is an important and powerful one. And I know that by you sharing your story, you're going to inspire others. And I just encourage anyone who's struggling right now to just take in and digest everything that Jackie said today. And perhaps maybe you'll feel compelled to one day take that next step or the first step, you know, to ask for help, open up to a friend, a family member, a medical professional who can provide support and resources for you. Sending love and strength to everyone who is in the battle every day. And everyone be sure to keep up with Jackie's life as a mom on Instagram at It's Jackie Donovan. Follow, subscribe, and listen to her podcast, The Part-Time Friends. New episodes available every Monday. And everyone, thanks for listening to this. And Jackie, thank you for being on. Thank you.